Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. Only a few short weeks ago, I connected with Adam Vibe Gutton and his story blew me away. It literally blew me away. And Adam had me as a guest on his show called Recovered on Purpose. And I knew, knew, knew we had to have him on Own Your Choices, On Your Life. So Adam is an author, speaker, and founder of Recovered on Purpose. He was homeless addicted to IV drugs just five years ago. And after a series of spiritual experiences and an encounter with God, Adam found recovery on November 6, 2017, and has not looked back. He published his now number one bestselling book from chains to saved on November 6, 2019, only two years later. And when he shares the story in this episode of how fast he wrote that book, it was absolutely channeled. It was no question. It was channeled. He was speaking exactly what needed to be shared with the world. He founded his company recovered on purpose with the mission of adding purpose, passion, and mission to the lives of addicts in recovery through sharing their stories with the world. Adam has helped thousands of addicts and remained clean and sober himself for nearly five years. And he believes he has found the number one way to make your recovery stick sharing your story. It is absolutely an incredible episode. I encourage you to listen, connect, follow, share this episode because Adam's mission is so powerful and deserves to be shared. I encourage you to listen to his book from chains to saved. I listened to it on audible and he also, there's a link here for, to be able to receive the book to read. And I I loved everything about this episode. I love this connection and I cannot wait to continue to watch Adam shine and impact all the lives that he is here to make a massive difference with. You're going to love this episode. Welcome to the show today, Adam. I'm so thrilled to have another conversation with you. Me too. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Excited. Absolutely. Um, I did your show last week and called Recovered on Purpose and such an incredible platform. And then I spent the weekend listening to your book, which really opened up for me so many different parts of my own story, but I could also see so many questions and things that I wanted to dive into with you and your story. So I would love it if you would just give even just a little quick intro about yourself and then we're going to dive right in. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess when I was younger, I was like golden boy, golden American boy. I was able to you know, um, be part of a football team in little league where we won state every single year. We won nationals once I was, uh, the home run derby hitter of my little league world series, my eighth grade year. 
but right around that time was when I was introduced to drugs. And I had a pretty successful high school career at Columbine High School. I was the captain of the wrestling team. I was the defensive captain of our football team that won state. Uh, but this whole time I had this hidden drug habit that I wasn't really telling anybody about. And it came to a head on September 28th of 2008 when I'd been out partying and drinking like most nights my freshman year of college. When I woke up to my phone ringing and vibrating down by my leg, mm -hmm. I swam through the soft sheets to find my hard phone with the bright screen that read 4.47 a.m. and my best friend Chucker was calling me. And I remember having the conscious choice that I could either answer the phone like I always do with, hey, what's up, Chuck? Mm -hmm. Or I could answer the way I was feeling with, oh, hello. And in my still drunken state, I chose the latter, to which a soft voice replied, hey, what's up? Why are you calling me this late? I was just calling to say hi. Don't call me this late again. And I hung up on him. And he shot himself. And for nearly a decade after that experience, I was unable to share it with anyone. Mm -hmm. As I bottled it down deeper and deeper and deeper with drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Drugs and alcohol were no longer a way to party and have fun. They had become my solution to life. The way that I felt, the way that I thought, the way that I coped. Everything in my life revolved around this solution that I had found in drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it led me to finding myself homeless, 86 from a homeless shelter, and unable to stop using these very drugs that were taking everything from my life. Thank you for sharing that. And I mean, just in the way that you did, I did watch some of your content over the weekend and just your book. And I could feel that. And I like, I'm just, I'm proud of you for everything that you've done and what you're sharing. Cause I, I know the level of permission and what you're doing and giving for others. So I do want to dive into more of this. The one thing you said there that really hit for me is that there came a point where drugs and alcohol became the solution. Yes. And I would love to, everybody has different definitions, different experiences, however we want to say it. How can somebody know when drugs and alcohol are becoming more of a problem than what, you know, this, this whole thing of is an addiction, is it a, um, is it actually a problem? I would just love to know your take on that piece. So in my experience, I've found three different types of people that have a problem with drugs or alcohol. There's somebody that can recognize basically immediately, they just know within themselves that they have a problem and they stop. They just realize that it's not something they want for their life and they're able to stop. Then there's someone that's a hard drinker or a binge drinker or binge drug user mm -hmm. where they start getting consequences whether it's a DUI or a lost relationship due to drugs and alcohol, or they start to miss work or things like that. And then that person is able to stop due to the consequences being enough to cause them to want to stop. And then there's someone like me where I believe that I have an allergy inside of my mind that I've had since I was, you know, 12 years old when I was first introduced to mind altering substances, where it creates something called the phenomenon of craving. If something goes into my body that alters my mind, I then crave, obsess, and want it more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. For someone that is 
wondering if it's a problem for them. I think if you are asking yourself that, it is worth making a list of consequences that you are seeing in your life right now. Mm-hmm. And if you notice consequences that are that are stacking up in your life and you want to stop, then you need to do whatever is in your power at that moment. Things that you know, maybe you just try to stop. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you'll learn a lot about yourself of which category you fit into. If you try to stop and you're able to stop, it's not serving you. If you're, if you have those consequences, you know that you want to stop, then do it. If you can, if you find that you can't, that starts to put you in the other two categories where you might need to find help for this problem. I appreciate you saying it the way that you did and the way that you shared it, because this is something that I I think I heard you say this similar in something else I've been listened to this weekend <laughs> and I loved it. And I wanted you to explain it here because this is a piece that I actually do believe that there are people, as you explain, almost like an allergy where it is the body's reaction and addiction happens almost immediately. And I actually, I, I watched it. I can't tell you how many people said, well, that's impossible. You can't have an addiction to marijuana. You can't have an addiction to it. Just make it stop. And it's like, no, that's just not the picture that we lived at all. And if I think, you know, in this space of how many other people I have had connections with, that becomes the story. Sometimes it is, it's like, once it's in the system, you'll do whatever you can to get it back again. And that is that, that's that cycle. Yeah. And if we're talking about it being a choice or not, the the thing is, is that that's not even an argument. Like people need to stop shaming people with this disease. Yep. I don't know. I don't know why I have it. I don't know why, you know, it's different for me when I drink or use drugs, mm-hmm. but a vast majority of teenagers admit to uh, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. They admit to it, mm-hmm. but a certain percentage, they think around 10% of, of humans have this, have this allergy of the mind, right? It's the same as if you were allergic to nuts and you get, you know, hives and things like that. That's an allergy that everybody understands because you either have it or you don't, and you know the reaction. Mm -hmm. But if you don't understand an allergy of the mind, one where we are allergic to our mind being altered and the allergy, the, the hives that we get, are the phenomenon of craving where we can't stop. So was it ever a choice if most kids are experimenting mm-hmm. and some kids have this allergy? I, I, I appreciate, again, I love and appreciate what you're saying. And I think that this is really important because there is no human behavior that in my opinion, that we can change without some kind of consequence. And there's no human behavior that changes with shame. I don't care what there is. I don't care what it is. It doesn't, it doesn't work. So applying shame to something, because that is something I heard many, many times. Well, it's a choice. It's just a choice. I'm like, the behavior that I'm watching does not look like a choice. It actually did not look like a choice at all. Um, It was another person. It was literally watching another person. So I, I love that you explained it that way. And there's another thing I want to take it to is through all of your content there are so many times in your journey 
that you were so spiritually supported that it was almost like it was it was almost unreal listening to how many times you actually survived circumstances because you listened to a download a feeling that made no sense and then you would leave a situation and then something traumatic would happen right at the situation so my take from that was that you actually were very spiritually supported many times throughout your journey. Um, anywhere along there that you want to share or anything that comes to mind? Um, I just wanted to ask you that question. Yeah, I gave I gave my life to Jesus when I was 10 years old. And the great thing about a relationship with God and truly becoming his, you know, is that he doesn't leave you during any time of your life, during anything that you do, any actions you take. Um, and he definitely doesn't shame you. He'll never shame you. Mm -hmm. I shamed myself and sometimes just thought that I wasn't worthy of his love and thought that I wasn't able to talk to him because of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that he ever left me. Mm -hmm. And the great thing that I did during my life, even though I was making all these choices, was I never questioned the reality of God. I always knew him. I always knew he was there. I always um, believed that he cared for me and I just was open for it, you know? And I always like during my addiction, during all those years when I was trying to stop, the only thing that kept me trying was that I had this deep faith that someday, somehow God was going to make this happen. <sighs> and then the breaking point for me was when I had literally tried everything. I had tried going to meetings every single day for months, going to church every Saturday and Sunday. Um, I had tried getting sponsored by Mr. King uh, Fellowship or, or a celebrity over here. Or I tried going to an MMA gym for a while, thinking that they would be able to beat recovery into me. And once I had that epiphany that I can't make a plan that is going to get me clean and sober, there is nothing that I can come up with in my mind that is going to work for someone like me. And I gave it up. I gave everything up, total control. And that's when a totally new understanding of God's love for me, God's care for me, and his power over this thing uh, really became new for me. And that's when I found recovery. Wow. That is that is so powerful, honestly. Um, you are giving, I know you are giving um, light permission, hope for so many people who are sitting here and listening and thinking, yeah, well, that's great for him, but I don't even know how to have a clue where to start. So I would love it if you would speak to somebody who's listening right now, who is saying, I would love to know how, like, I want to do something different. I want to create change. Where do you start? I'm going to tell you a story and this happened in this happened in recovery. Uh, I was just before getting two years clean and sober at the time I was more successful than I had ever imagined by world uh, standards. I was living in this brand new downtown apartment in Denver, had a new car, motorcycle, all this stuff, a business with like 15 employees. But I found myself miserable mm -hmm. because none of that was answering that that call in my heart, that call in my soul for more. And I believe when we have that call, when we have that thing in our heart that says that we're meant for more, we're meant for a purpose, that is what we were born for. 
And the desires of our heart literally is from the father desire. The root words for desire mean from the father. So if we have that desire in our heart, but we don't know what it is, we go to God and ask him. So I was sitting on my couch and I had all these feelings about how nothing is worth it. Like I'm, I'm successful, but I'm, I'm unhappy. And I just had this realization, like, this isn't it, whatever this is, this isn't it went over to my bed. I prayed super hard. I was like, I'm sick of this. God, I, I, you got me out of addiction, but this isn't it. I don't know what this is, but I know you have more for me and God, I want to help people. I want to help millions of people. God, I want to bring you to millions of people. God, show me what to do. Show me what to do. And when I said it, and here's, here's a really key point for how you come to God to, to share these things with you is honesty honesty in that question. Like, I really want to know, and I want to do it also because whatever that desire in your heart is, that's calling you to, to greater things. That's calling you to purpose. That thing is the number one thing. And really the only thing that will bring you to fulfillment and peace and joy in your life all the time by doing that. That's, that is so, so, so true. And as you are in this space, I mean, at that point, at that, I think that was the two-year mark you said? Just before two years. Yeah. Yeah. Just before two years. Where did the book idea come from (laughs) and how did that download? So I say that prayer Yep. and the next day I wake up and I say the same prayer, get right out of bed, get down on my knees and say the same prayer. Mm -hmm. And then within a few minutes, you know, I had made breakfast or whatever and was scrolling on Instagram or Facebook. And I saw this random ad I'd never seen before mm-hmm. um, for a conference about how to bring God into your business. And what's beautiful about, you know, asking God and then being open to answers is he answers in so many different ways and you got to be open for it. So I bought my ticket, not knowing who this was, not knowing what it was or anything. And I just planned to go. I go out to uh, Vacaville, California. And the first night while they're playing, Jesus culture is playing on the stage. I'm there with like 1500 other people and don't know anybody. So I'm just like up there and I'm worshiping in front of the stage and, you know, have my hands up and stuff. And then I hear God's voice and he says, your new company is called recovered on purpose. And I like looked up and I was like, dang, that's good. And I pulled out my phone and I, I got on the Colorado, I got on the Colorado secretary of state right there on the worship, worship uh, floor, made sure it was available, copped it right there, got on GoDaddy, got recovered on purpose.com. And I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it is yet, but let's go. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, uh, September 28th of 2019, which was exactly 11 years after Chuck's suicide, I am in that conference and someone comes up on stage and starts talking about how to write and self-publish a book. And I'm sitting there and I'm like taking notes, you know, because I do that while I'm listening to speakers. And then I hear that voice again. And he says, if you publish your book for your two years clean and sober, you're going to inspire so many other addicts to share their stories. And I was like, my two years clean and sober, that's in five weeks. How am I possibly going to make that happen? And The great thing about it was when I went home, I set everything else aside. I put my phone away. 
I put um, the other business. I let them know, hey, I'm focusing on this. I need you guys to back me up for the next, you know, this amount of time. And I sat down and I wrote my book in those five weeks. I got the cover design done, got the pictures done and everything. And during that whole process, the entire process, I was so happy, so content, so excited, all of that, because it was no longer a a question of if this is going to happen. It was, I am doing the steps to make this happen because I feel like this is my purpose. I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do right now. And I published that book on November 6, 2019 for my two years clean and sober. Within a couple of days, it became a number one bestseller. And now uh, I have no idea. It's been, it's over 2000 people have bought the book and I have no idea how many people I've been able to give it to for free. Oh, I love that story. And as somebody who's written a book, five weeks is no joke, but does that ever tell you how clear in alignment you were with what you were supposed to be doing? And that's, you weren't forcing it. You were allowing, like allowing that to come through and it came out into a book and the name of the book, just for everyone to hear. Yeah. From chains to saved one man's journey through the spiritual realm of addiction. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about following following purpose, following God's call for your life is that you have no idea the actual big plan. All I was focused on was writing and publishing a book in five weeks. And in order to do that, I couldn't just sit down and write and hope for the best. So I got on my big whiteboard and I created my own system about, okay, how do I have to do this? How do I have to make a checklist of exactly what I have to do? How do I, you know, map it out exactly what I want to share and exactly, you know, the message I want to deliver. And I did all this on a whiteboard for the first day or two to make sure that I had the strategic plan. And what I didn't realize at the time was I was creating a strategic plan for everybody in recovery to be able to share their story exactly the same way that I do. Mm-hmm. And I've added on to that system. I've helped other people in recovery write and publish books. Um, now I teach people how to share their story through video and speaking and podcasts and things like that. And it all started with me having that call, that purpose to write my own book and get my own story out. <laughs> I I am only laughing and smiling because like the synchronicities in different stories um, between the two of us, I love this because I, I'm so passionate about people sharing their story. Mm-hmm. And I get messages from people saying, Oh God, it's such a shame story. And it's that I'm like, perfect. These are the best ones because like we when the more we feed the shame, the more we stay quiet and mm-hmm. you've seen it. And I'm sure you've seen it in your students and people that you work with that when you can share those stories, like it's just, you can't even reach how far that ripple effect goes. Amen. Amen. The beautiful thing when I, when I got that book out, um, I just wanted to share it at first. I just wanted to share it to inspire other addicts to tell their stories. I didn't realize at the time that I would start getting messages and emails from people I had never met that found my book somewhere in different countries in Sweden and South Africa and every state in the United States, people coming out of jail and hitting me up because their mom sent them my book in jail. They read my book and then passed it to all of the 31 people in their pod and everybody read my book. Mm-hmm. That's that's the power of a story and, and like podcasts. We have no idea who this will reach and what they're going through in that moment. And if you have a story, which every single person that's listening right now has a story of something they have overcome. The beautiful thing about sharing that story is you begin to not only overcome 
more what you went through, but you start to come up with more challenges. You start to come up with more obstacles while you share that story. You start helping people. You start learning more techniques on helping people, more skills of sharing your story, more networks to share your story on, and you just reach more people with it. And it's it's so healing for the person that's sharing also. I believe that the number one relapse prevention, because we're seeing over 85% of addicts that come out of long-term treatment relapse within the first year. And I believe that's because we, we teach how to quit using drugs, but without adding that purpose to your life and recovery, that other thing that you're chasing, right? That, that, that feeling that you get from knowing that you're doing what you're here to do without that, we become empty. Like I was right before the two year mark and people sharing their stories in recovery is it's so beautiful to watch them just flourish and blossom into this person that is like excited about their recovery, excited about their life. They want to share the the beautiful things that are happening in their life. So they're like working harder on making this happen so that they can share it with people that are suffering. Like, Hey, this is possible. Like, like uh, today I posted a story from someone in one of my groups. He's got just under three years. And when his last day of, uh, of drug use, he was, on the run from the police, all he was doing every day was just looking for drugs, was, you know, stealing and doing all that stuff. And what he was able to share today was that he passed his real estate license. He's a real estate agent today in wow. under three years. Wow. You know? Yeah. How many people is that going to touch? We have no idea, you know? Mm-hmm. No, we definitely don't. And I mean, it's, there's so much that can change and can shift that you don't see it. You don't see all the different possibilities, but it's just, it requires us to be in that action, get into some kind of action state immediately and take those steps. Um, As I listened to all of your content and then our interview on the weekend, when I look at it, like someone here is listening and says, okay, but I don't have the support right? I don't have the support or my family has pretty much cut me off because they're so tired of all of it or whatever you want to say. What do we do in that? Like what, what message can you give to somebody right now who is feeling very isolated, which I mean, I I would believe is a fairly normal emotion in this experience, but feeling isolated, feeling like they're alone and feeling like they don't have the support in order to make this kind of a change in their life. Yeah, you know, you're you're listening to someone that was literally kicked out of the homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. I was alone alone at the end. And what you need to find in that time is how you're going to communicate with God. Period. You just have to start. Number 1, you have to start. You have to humble yourself, drop on your knees and say, "God, I need help with this. Mm-hmm. Show me what to do." Mm-hmm. And then don't don't just think that all of a sudden things are going to fall out of the sky and, you know, someone's going to call you and say, hey, this $35,000 a month treatment center just opened up to give it to you for free. That doesn't happen. But if you ask God and then you continue to seek what you asked for, the answers will come. And you can, the great thing about the state of the world and the internet right now is that you are able to, in whatever city, whatever country you're in, you can use a search engine, whether it's Google or whatever you use in your country, and search support group for 
blank problem, mm -hmm. support group for, um, or how to recover from blank or how to overcome blank. Just Google that and start reading everything you find. Mm -hmm. And then you can also go on social media networks. If you go on Facebook or YouTube or any of these, you put in the search bar, um, group for recovering from blank or how to overcome blank. You will find groups of people all over the world mm -hmm. that have the solution to what you're dealing with. And you got to, uh, cause at, at the end, I didn't care what anybody thought about me anymore because there wasn't anything to think about. I couldn't even find a shower and I was 148 pounds. So I was at a point where like, I didn't care to go into a meeting and say, I'm struggling. I need help. And I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So you can't get help without asking for it also and being honest about where you're at. Don't go wherever you're going for support to try to look good. Try to look as bad as you possibly can so that the people in there want to help you get up. Because usually in those groups, if you find a group with something that you're struggling with, they all stay recovered. They stay in this state of happiness by helping other people get from where they were. So you want to be totally honest about everything going on in your life at, at this moment. You, everything you're just saying there about, you know, I'm thinking of being vulnerable, being transparent, being real, not hiding, like don't try and sugarcoat where, where you're at. And that goes for anything. Like this is for anything. Um, the piece about the Facebook groups, I, I, I don't say it enough because it's been so long for me, but that was a major turning point. I actually was Google searching, like, what do is, what do other parents who are dealing with addiction? What do they do? How do they handle it? And I popped into a Facebook group and I remember visibly sitting there and going, there's like 50,000 moms in this one group and a hundred thousand moms in the other group. Like mm -hmm. I went, Wow. Was my, were my eyes ever closed and thinking that I was the only person in the world who was struggling with this, but I actually did. Part of that is because we don't, we have so much shame around these stories. We don't talk about them and we don't talk about this period. So it almost created this perfect storm where social media became a space to connect with other moms that was a very big turning point for me was recognizing that I was not the only person who was struggling. Amen. And I'm telling you right now, anybody out there struggling with anything, you are not alone a hundred percent and addicts that are struggling. Usually at some point they, they really think that nobody could possibly understand what they're going through. Nobody could possibly understand the trauma that they endured as a kid. But after helping over 100 addicts in my recovery find recovery, hearing all of their stories, all of the things that, that we go through, um, a lot of common things come up. I've heard stories of, you know, childhood trauma that that we all hate to hear about that I've, you know, I've heard many stories of it that, you know, and you, you get to a point where you have to release yourself from the emotions that happen while you listen to those stories. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, men, it happens to men also. There's, there's a huge number of men that were, were sexually abused as kids that go into addiction. And then they, they feel like they can never tell anybody about it because they're, they have so much shame around it. But the thing is, is that there's so many other men that have gone through that. And there's men that have overcome addiction that have gone through that. 
that need to share their stories loud mm-hmm. so that other men suffering can can know that they're not alone in that you know every single trauma that you could imagine um i've heard a variant of that story I agree. I 100% agree. And I I can't imagine the amount of stories that you've heard. And I think of, um, I've heard this one in the sense that I didn't have trauma. So I don't even understand what my problem is. Like I don't even understand, which is still judging and still shaming ourselves in that situation. I take that back to the power of the addiction. I take that back to like the power of um, your brain and how much it's craving what it wants. So whether something did or didn't happen to you, please don't shame yourself either way because it doesn't change the story, right? That, that sitting in that shame energy, it will never change the story. A hundred percent. I'm actually one of those. And stats show that about two thirds of serious addicts have serious childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a whole group of us, a third of us that didn't go through childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. I shared the story of Chuck because that's the that's the moment. That's the the experience I had where I made the decision and I started to recognize that I was no longer only using these things for partying. Mm-hmm. That's when it switched for me, knowing that I was using them for a different thing. Mm-hmm. My addiction started when I was 12. The, the first time I tried cocaine and then I started with alcohol and marijuana after that. So there's, you know, we all have a story. We all have these things. I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, I'm, I'm an addict. I, I was born uh, with this thing. I've recovered from it. I'm never going to use again. I don't have to worry about that. I think it's crap when people say you're, you know, you're always an addict and you're always recovering from it. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you can recover. Once and for all from this thing, that doesn't mean I'm cured to where I can all of a sudden, you know, not have the allergy anymore. Like I'm well aware that if I take a little, like a little line of Coke, you know, I'm probably going to be homeless within a week banging heroin. You know, that's just how it works for people like me, Mm -hmm. but I'm able to be recovered and not have to worry about going back there because I don't have to use anymore. Yeah. That's wow. Wow. Um, the, the other question I want to ask you, and I realize this is a, this is a personal question, but I think it's really powerful and it's out there in your social media, the video footage of you dying, Mm -hmm. the video footage. How did that come about? How do you feel like, what does that start for you? And if you could explain that because it is powerful. Yeah. Well, it was uh, November 6th. And I don't know if you've noticed that I did notice all the time, but November 6th of 2015, mm-hmm. I had, well, it was November 5th when I went over there, but it was November 6th when this happened. But I go over to my then girlfriend's aunt's house where she was staying, saw her for a while. And I wasn't telling her that I was using or anything. I was hiding it from everybody again. And I left around 1230, one o'clock, one thirty, and went around the corner and I made myself a shot. And I put it in my arm and I got upset because I thought it was bunk. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel that rush that I usually get from heroin. And the next thing I know, I am waking up on a pile of glass on the asphalt with blue and red lights all around me and not really knowing what's happening, you know, and I ended up going to, you know, I got, I got charged with, 
you know, possession of drugs. Mm -hmm. I had a very little amount on me. It was obviously personal Mm -hmm. and we can go into that if you like, but, um, I was charged for it and I was not able to get treatment for it. But four months later at my first preliminary hearing, I was excited because my lawyer and I had come up with a really good defense because we thought that the evidence was going to be suppressed because they did an illegal search after, you know, the whole thing happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there in the courtroom with my lawyer and the DA rolls out this 52 inch flat screen TV in front of the courtroom, right in front of my face, admits it into evidence and pushes play. And you just hear this white noise come into the courtroom. And then you notice that you're in this cop car zooming down the road and it's body cam footage. And he pulls up to a car that's at a stop sign. And I see my own myself Mm -hmm. slumped over a steering wheel and I'm not moving. And And the cop gets out and he starts shaking the car and yelling and trying to wake me up, flashing lights in my eyes and stuff. And he ends up having to break the window to pull me out. And in that courtroom, there was a very clear uh, picture of my body without spirit, without breath, without Mm -hmm. a soul in it, looking directly into that camera, directly into my own eyes. Mm -hmm. And I started to cry in the courtroom. And I, I, you know, I was able to get that footage because it was admitted into evidence. So I have access to it. So I'm able to use that footage to get my message out more. Like I was actually there. I was found without, without breath and with almost a completely like they couldn't find pulse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I made it, I'm, I'm someone that made it and I recovered from this thing. And it's so important that we let people know that it's like, no matter how low you go, you can, you can recover. It's possible. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I honestly, like it took my breath away when I saw it, it did. It took my breath away. And I, I just, I just want to say, I'm proud of you for sharing that piece, that memory, because that is such a piece of permission for other people to see, like you can come back, you can come back. And I'm sure it was almost surreal to see it of yourself. Yes. The first time when I, when I saw myself, it was, it was very, 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 very hard Mm -hmm. because the only perspective I had on it was shooting up and then waking up on the ground. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the officers went through. I didn't know that people got released from a movie theater and found me dead behind the wheel of a car right outside the movie theater. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't think about all those people, you know, and the reason why I'm, I'm totally able to share it and I'm totally, you know, um, I'm willing to share those parts is I've gotten past the point of shame a hundred percent. I am all in with doing whatever I have to do to help somebody else get out of where I was. Yeah. If that means making myself look bad, if that makes means, you know, sharing stories that make me look really bad, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And what I've found in sharing these stories and sharing that video is way more overwhelming support from people that aren't struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. And then I've received so many messages and so many emails from people that are struggling with addiction because I'm sharing it. So I'm not ashamed of it at all. 
Yeah. And I'm just, I'm like, so proud of you, honestly, because I think this is the piece like shame has power because we give it power. We, we are the ones giving it power. The soon as you start to add a voice in whatever way you want to, whether it is in a closed support group, whether it's in a Facebook group, it's on a podcast, it's in your book, whatever that is. The second you start to add a voice to it, shame can't survive. And and it just, it's gone and it loses its power. And once you get the feeling of shame, not having the power, it becomes this shift of, oh my gosh, like I actually, I don't have to live like that. Like I don't have to give that story power. And I believe our stories happen to us for a reason and we can do something with them to make a difference and turn that pain into a purpose without sounding cliche. I really feel like, is there anyone more equipped to support other people on this journey than somebody who has walked it? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. What I found was all these stories that were hidden under a rock, right? Mm -hmm. That that's them being under a rock. And me thinking shame and all that stuff, that's the rock. The shame is the rock. Yes. And when we just let one out, we start lifting that rock up. We realize that the power is all under that rock. The power is under that rock. As soon as we lift that rock off Mm -hmm. by sharing it, those actually become our superpowers. Shame is, is a technique of the enemy against purpose it's it's holding you back from what you're truly called to do it's actually if you can look at the stories in your life that you're ashamed to share Mm -hmm. if you can shift to knowing that shame is actually communication to you of what you're supposed to do what you're supposed to share Mm -hmm. on the other side of that you will recognize a power that you have never experienced I think my mind was just blown because I just I literally, I just had a moment there where I was like, this is that piece. Like, it's almost like I could see shame as being the magnifying, the compass, the showing you like what it, what it is. One of the questions I like to ask a lot of my clients is like, what is one story you wish you could be more vulnerable about? Mm. And immediately they're like, well, it's this, but I don't really want to say anything. And I'm like, what would it be like if you, you know what it feels like to feed the shame for your whole life? Imagine what it would feel like if you didn't. Mm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. You have such a big purpose and such a big vision and what you're doing and everything I see and hear. And I got to be part of the energy is like, this. just all ripple effect to me is everything you're doing is incredible. Your life purpose. If you could sum it up into one sentence, two sentences, what would you say it is? To end addiction. Mm-hmm. period. And I believe that it's possible to build something in this generation that over the next three to four generations mm-hmm. will actually stop chronic, undesired drug use. I believe that we can, you know, build a system together because I'm, I am well aware that there is nothing I can do alone or of my own power that's going to end this thing. Mm-hmm. But I believe a hundred percent that there is something that can, mm-hmm. and and it is God's will for this to be done. Twenty twenty one, we saw a hundred thousand, over a hundred thousand deaths for the first time in America from overdose, and it's spiking again in twenty twenty two. There are 
an estimated 22 million people in America alone in recovery from substance use disorder. If those 22 million people or even 10% or even 5% or even 1% shared their stories the way that I do, we would actually see this thing have a huge dent. We would have an army of people that actually know how to help going out and helping. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That was actually going to be one of my questions for you is if you knew the stats over the past couple of years, because um, I'm not saying anything against pandemic. I'm not even going there. My message is, is that I feel like the actual pandemic we haven't seen yet. We're not talking about it yet in a sense of, you know, addiction and um, alcohol and drug use and so many behaviors that really just amplified over the last two years. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, they found, and I'm, I only know the stats for America. I know that you're in, you're in Canada, but um, they found that since 2020 uh, alcoholism and and drug abuse has risen 40%, 40% due specifically to the lockdown. 100% um, we can see that that's the cause. Mm -hmm. And we've seen increases in domestic violence and and obviously drug-related deaths. Mm -hmm. I don't, I personally do not um, combine the fentanyl crisis with the pandemic Mm -hmm. because I overdosed from fentanyl in 2015. That's why I said, you know, I didn't feel that rush or whatever, because it wasn't something that I'd ever done before. Mm-hmm. That was when the spike started was in 2015. Wow. The, the pandemic absolutely, you know, amplified our issues, our mental issues, our loneliness and all that. But this thing was happening before that. Mm-hmm. That was just a, another thing that, that pushed it forward. But the solution is not um, it's not looking at the societal issues with loneliness or necessarily even mental illness. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that's the solution to the fentanyl crisis killing everybody. Mm-hmm. It's it's a political issue. It is absolutely a an issue of us getting drugs that we don't even know what they are yep. on the streets, getting yep. fake drugs, and not having access to things that are going to save our life. You know, there is no reason why I am found dead behind the wheel of a car from a disease that I've been trapped in since I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I get found with a very small amount of the only thing I know in life. You charge me with a felony. You threaten me with five years in prison if I don't do this probation correctly. Mm-hmm. And by the by six to eight months into my probation, I am going into my probation officer unannounced, high out of my mind, begging him to put me in prison because I can't stop using. And this same probation officer, a couple months before, reached out to all the treatment centers, his superiors and everybody trying to get me in treatment. And there was nothing that he could do. How is it that we have a system that is punishing people for a disease that absolutely could find a solution. And why why are we allowing cartels to run it? Why are we allowing people that do not care about the society, that don't care about these human beings that are suffering? They don't care if you die. Mm -mm. They don't care. But if we were able to 
and I'm going to say a little bit oh. of a crazy idea, but if we were able to legalize and, and control mm-hmm. every single drug, we would have so many benefits from it. We would have, we would stop seeing a rise in OD. We would, we would be able to have a place where resources for addicts are available. Mm-hmm. You would be blown away by the amount of people that reach out to me for help that have never heard of 12 steps that have never heard of, of this treatment center. They didn't even know treatment exists because they're over here and they don't even know who to talk to about this issue. But if all drugs were regulated, mm-hmm. we would have a place where we could talk to every single addict that would also cut back on crime because what are, what are most gangs fighting over? They're fighting over drug turf. Yep. So, and imagine this, Imagine addicts that are suffering in their disease. Mm-hmm. They go in and they buy these drugs and they pay, let's say, 20% tax on them. The price isn't going to be anywhere near what they're paying on the streets right now because the government is making it. Yeah. That 22% tax that is generating that much money, what if that was put into government treatment centers? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, Addicts that are suffering are actually paying for their own treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's a cycle of helping each other, even when you're sick. I'm so glad you went here. Thank you for that. I am really glad that you went here because here's the thing, learning from and hearing from somebody who has lived it, who's walked it, who has been in the trenches with others and sees that perspective. I mean, Canada legalized marijuana. I don't know three years ago. I'm not sure how long. And I can't tell you how many people said like, you must be so angry about that. I'm like, it, that would have solved none of my problems that had nothing to do with what we went through. And if, if that was the case, I would just like to know that the money that is being generated, it, I would love to know that it was being put towards families and support that I can't say it is, I have my doubts, but that's what I would like to see because Back then, again, resources were extremely limited for what we could do, extremely limited. And it is a family disease. I realize that's another podcast topic all on its own. But when I finally had to recognize that I needed to get some support with how to manage this and what to do, I mean, I was tapping into resources, but man, did I ever have to turn over those stones over and over and over to find anything. Yeah, 100%. And it's, it's sad because they say that they have these, and I'm still talking about America, but they say they have these, you know, um, government assisted treatment centers where you can go if you're on Medicaid or whatever, but a vast majority of addicts suffering mm-hmm. have either no insurance or state insurance yeah. and these treatment centers and the amount that, that the government pays to house an addict out of Medicaid mm-hmm. is a seventh or less what private insurance pays. So most of these treatment centers, they're not going to go the Medicaid route because it's a business. Why would it's they? a business like anything else. Yeah. And I was, I literally looked at the books and was going into a treatment center in Florida that is fully Medicaid. And we were, we were talking about partnering and all this. And then when I go into the books and I look at it, I, I love their mission. I love what they're doing. I love their passion but I can't get involved in this business because you're not making any money and there's no plan that could possibly happen to make money in this business. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. It's wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I, I, again, proud of you. Love this conversation. I think it's really important to talk about it from this perspective. You have such a big purpose and you can hear it. You're passionate. You do like so many things and give back. Now that I'm following you in social media, I see it everywhere and I love it. I love it. How do you take care of you? Because this is not a light mission, but we all know when you're following a mission that you know you're called for and is for you, that that gives you more fuel. But how do you take care of you? Well, I have certain habits that I, that I implement every day, that I take care of myself, you know, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I love what I do during the day. I love the work I do. I love spending 10, 12 hours a day, you know, working on this. But I also have like networks of friends that aren't in recovery that are doing other things. You know, last night I went to uh, one of my personal development networks. We go to one of my friend's apartments uh, once a week and we do breath work and go in his sauna and then we do cold plunging, you know, and then we and then we after we did that, we sat there and talked for like two hours about whatever came up, Mm -hmm. you know, and that means that I'm able to remove myself from the conversation that I'm always in you know, so that I can, you know, involve myself with other things. I can love things and I can talk to people about what they're up to, the changes they're making with the world. And then I also am now a paddle tennis player. I don't know if you've heard of paddle tennis. No, I haven't. (laughs) I learned about it like a month ago and I made the decision after playing it one time that I am a paddle tennis player now. Mm -hmm. And it's this, it's basically like tennis, but it's got walls all around the court. You play with a different kind of racket. It's a paddle mm-hmm. and that you can bounce it off the walls on the side. And like, you always uh, play with a team member and like, it's the same rules as tennis, except there's walls. So I, I find things that I love mm-hmm. and I do them. Mm-hmm. I love skydiving. I've sky, I've skydived, skydove, one I, of those yeah, one of in, those. <laughs> yeah, in three different countries now. And oh, really? yeah, because that was something that in my addiction, I always wanted to do. Since mm-hmm. I was like 16 years old, I always wanted to go skydiving. But for so long, whenever I would go to make a plan to go skydiving, I realized that it costs a lot of heroin to go skydiving. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if I could make it away from heroin for that long because it's like a six, eight hour trip. So at six months, clean and sober, I went skydiving for my first time mm-hmm. and I loved it. So what I do to take care of myself is. I find things I love and I do it. Mm-hmm. I don't question if I should anymore. I don't make excuses for not doing things that I love. I do them. You've made yourself a priority. You listen to what you need. You give back, like you find joy in other ways. I I love all of that because one of the things that we talked about was how not to take this on, like how not to, because we, we both deal with a lot of shame stories and that can be heavy. If I'm not taking care of me, those stories feel heavier. I have a harder time in, in doing that. The more I can take care of me, the better perspective I have. And I feel like I can give back to others. A hundred percent. Yeah. What I, the way I look at it is if we're going to be pouring into other people, our cup has to be full. Mm -hmm. And if we are, if we have a half full cup Mm -hmm. and we're pouring into other people, we're going to wind up empty. Mm -hmm. And that's where shame and stuff starts happening again, because why am I not good enough and all this stuff. And the number one way to fill up your cup 
is to have a very specific routine of self-care. Mm-hmm. There's no other, there's no other answer that I have found, no. but the way that you fill up your cup is find out what fills up your cup and do it every single day before you go take care of other people, mm-hmm. before you get on your phone and start answering messages from people that are suffering before all of that, you got to fill your cup up. And then that comes from a place of, of pouring out from the overflow. Mm-hmm. It's the overflow. Um, if I can share and people who've listened to this podcast, I've heard this story before, but I heard Lisa Nichols in 2015 and it changed, honestly changed my thinking the cup and the saucer and the cup is we fill into the cup, the cup overflows into the saucer. The overflow is what we feed to others. Amen. And it's like, so can you see what do you need to make your cup to overflow in order to give to others? And the thing is, is that what I do today I can, you know, be proud of and recognize I did my self-care. I did those things tomorrow. We start over again. Cup is exactly. empty again. It's yes. not, it's not carryover. There's no carryover in the cup. You <laughs> have to keep filling the cup in order to give to others. Yes, exactly. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the morning you're very dehydrated. Mm-hmm. You know, you just went, you know, eight, 10 hours or whatever without any water. So look at it like that. Every morning you got to drink water and fill your cup up because you lost it during your sleep. <laughs> 100%. So I want to know where can people find you, connect you? I'll make sure everything's in the show notes, but where's the best place to connect and follow you and learn more about what you're doing? Facebook, Recovered on Purpose. And if you want to hear more of my story and, and my book, if you want to read my book or listen to it, I give it away for free now. It's a digital and audio copy of my book. You can go to fromchainstosaved.com. Mm-hmm. And if there happens to be anybody listening that is in recovery and wants to learn how to share your story powerfully, wants to you know, get that confidence, learn how to network with podcasts, network with you know, other people sharing their stories and social media, message my Facebook page, Recovered on Purpose, and let me know. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Please reach out to him because... I mean, your Facebook group is, you've got some good numbers in there. There's like a good energy of people in there. And I love that. Yeah. Um, it's a, I would call that a very safe container. So if you are listening to this and this is something that you want support with, I would 100% reach out, like reach out to Adam and do that. I can say without a doubt, like some of my closest friends today, I met in Facebook groups. Mm. I met in like support groups and I I would have never, would have never, ever even pictured that could happen. So that circle that you're looking to create could be like literally one step away. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm. Reach out. Yeah, please do. Please do. I have loved this conversation. I have so many other things I could ask you, but I really want to honor your time. I want to ask you one last question and it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? That anyone at any time can completely radically change their life and become a totally new person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please let that land. If you're listening, it's possible for anyone. It really is. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Marsha. Loved it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. 
I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.